This afternoon, welcome to Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth program and podcast. I'm Missionary Evangelist Lawrence Register, and I want to continue in my message this afternoon in why I believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, part number three. Now, I cannot overemphasize to the Christian the importance of knowing and trusting the Word of God of having the confidence that you can believe God's word and you can trust it, that you can depend upon it, that God means what he says and that he will will do what he says. You, You must learn to trust the word of God. Now let's look at part three today. And in part three, we're going to move to points three, four, five, and six as we continue our study on the divine inspiration of the Bible. There are those who say that they do not believe the Bible to be complete and inerrant. They say that is that is why we need more modern translations, as though men in their weak and puny efforts could bring the Word of God up to date. My response is simply, you mean to tell me that the Almighty God that has created this entire world and universe and he also sustains it by the word of his power, cannot give us a complete, inerrant, divinely inspired Bible after 6,000 years. We are now, according to the words of God, coming to the end of the age, to the end of the last world civilization, and according to Revelations chapters 2 and 3, we have passed through over 90% of the church age and are now living in the last half of the Laodicean church, the seventh and last church age. And men are still pushing that old doctrine of if we do not have a complete, that we do not have a complete inerrant word of God. I cannot believe that. It's 2020. How much more time does man need or want? That is like saying God did not give us a complete Savior or complete salvation, but he spoon-fed it to us a little at a time, kind of like Catholicism's teaching on salvation that you get it on the installment plan. But I proclaim to you that the written word and the living word are the same, and we have them. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25 says, Being born again, that's, that's when we're saved, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the living word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass, the scripture says the grass withereth. That means man grows old. And the, and the flower thereof falls away. That flower is life's seed. The falling away is that it dies. After man's time has come and gone, after all the naysayers have passed away like their predecessors before them, that the word of God is going to still endure and still be. 
But the word of God, the scripture tells us, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is a word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Therefore, I believe that we have the complete word of God. No more translations, revisions, corrections, please. The earth itself has had enough of man's failed attempts at the word of God. Now, number three, point number three, why I believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God is because, first of all, of the reliability of the Bible. I believe that God has preserved his word, has handed it down to us, completed and without error. And I believe that I can boast in the word of God and say he did it with precision accuracy. The Bible above any book of antiquity has been kept by the hand of God. Until recently, the oldest known Hebrew manuscripts was not dated earlier than 100 AD. That means they did not go back any further than that. Now to that fact, just one illustration. In 1948, a shepherd boy found in the cave northwest of the Dead Sea some ancient scrolls. And that great modern discovery hidden for over a thousand years is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were copies of copies of original text, thousands of copies in fact. There were two complete copies of the book of Isaiah, a complete copy of Psalms, and a complete copy of Leviticus. When they put it all together, it pushed history back a thousand years to beyond the times of the first century church. They had been hidden there for someone around the time of the church age. God has preserved them all those years to back up his word. This same Bible we're holding in our hands since the printing of it in 1611 into the English language. Now we have had 6,000 complete copies of the original Greek text of the New Testament. These Dead Sea Scrolls findings just simply back up the King James Version of the Old Testament. Now I say the King James Version uh, because all the modern translations that we have today are not translations, but literally they are revisions. They were not translated from one language to another as the King James Bible was translated out of the original tongue into the English language, but literally revisions are revisings of the original English King James Version. What is a version? It is a revision. It is the actions of revising. To revise means to reconsider or to change something or to change one's opinion. But what has happened to these modern revisions, the NIV, New King James Version, the American Standard, and so on and so forth? Instead of improving the text as they claim to have, they have correct, corrupted the text in many places, leaving out the name of God, leaving out Jesus, and attacking Christ's divinity and lordship and many, many other changes and corruptions. This, the sacrosanctity of the new of the NIV has made it in the eyes of many inviolable. They do not deserve to be called translations, but it would be more proper to call them commentaries because of all the changes and in inserting of man's opinions and tamperings with the text. Or should we better say better revise revisions? Now let's compare these findings, the, 
the findings that we've already talked about in the Hebrew manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and 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 all the all the the translations and the thousands upon thousands of copies of the original translation of the Bible. Let's compare these findings with other ancient books of literature. Let's look at Homer, for instance. He lived in 800 B.C., and you will know him by his work, The Odyssey. It was about this time that the art of writing was brought to Greece. From the time that Homer wrote to the end of his life, we possess the oldest copies of his work, and they date back only 400 years. His two main works, The Odyssey, which claims to be have, have been written 2,800 years ago, but it wasn't up until the 15th century that it was only given orally. Then was found a clay tablet with only fragments written on it. The other work of Homer was the Iliad, is the, is the Iliad and is the events of the final weeks of the Trojan War and the Greek siege of the city of Troy. And while the secularist intellectuals swear by Homer, there are doubts by some that he even existed. The works of Plato, his copies, we can only trace back 1,300 years. The works of Caesar can only trace his copies back a 1,000 years. But when we put that in perspective and the idea that the literary crowd today swear by these men and we have only a few copies of their work, that is absurd. But of the Bible, we have not only one or two thousand, but thousands and thousands of copies, and that with complete accuracy. But you have to preach and preach and preach to convince men of the validity of the Word of God, the accuracy of the Word of God, and the reliability of the Word of God. But have you ever noticed how the dissertations of an atheist is never long, just repetitive? Yet they easily convince men by the thousands, nothing more than ravings of a madman, but they are convincing to the thousands. But yet men will quote from Homer, Plato, Socrates, and Caesar, and rely on those old manuscripts, manuscripts which have no comparison <coughs> to the authenticity of the Bible. Now, number four reason why I believe the Bible to be the divinely inspired Word of God is because of the historical accuracy of the Bible. What we mean by the historical accuracy of the Bible is that it gives great details about persons, places, things, or events before they come to pass. The Scripture tells us what God said about Himself. The scripture says, God says, I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. We have Daniel's vision of the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar that gave us a look at four major world empires, the characters in them and when and how they would fall before history could get them into the history books and before they ever came to pass. But let's look at one of the events that the Bible spoke of for an illustration of this because it is not only in the Bible but is also in the books of secular history. And that's Isaiah's descriptions and deeds of Cyrus the Great. He was the king of the Persian Empire known today as modern Iran. Many Bible scholars believe him to be the son of Esther and King Ahasuerus. I have done a study on this myself and I have some research papers on it and I'm almost convinced but not quite. 
Let's look at the prophecy about Cyrus the Great. Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would conquer Babylon and Egypt, which he did, and start the rebuilding of the Jewish temple and the city Jerusalem, and would set the Jews free from their bondage without payment or ransom. Isaiah 44 28 says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Isaiah 45 and 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, specifically the Babylonian and the Egyptian nations. In Isaiah 45 and 13, He shall build my city, and he shall let my captives go, not for price or reward, saith the Lord. In, the day, in those days it was customary that when a, a army that had captured another nation or another army that in time when they let the captives go they would let them go but they'd always they would always cost a price for them to be let go but here Isaiah long before it ever happened said that God said to Cyrus that you will let my captives go that's Israel not for price or reward saith the Lord of hosts thus Cyrus the great was a secular historical character as well as a biblical historical character his name is found in the Bible no less than 23 times and in four different books, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Isaiah, and Daniel. Ezra spoke of Cyrus 15 times. The Holy Spirit surely wanted us to know who this man was. You say to me, <clears throat> what's so great about this? What's your point? I'll tell you, my point is, all of this was spoken 150 years before Cyrus was born, and 180 years before he did them, and it was spoken 80 years before the Jews ever went into captivity in the first place. What are the odds of that? Uh, are the odds on that? Think about this. What if I were to ask you to name the president of the United States 100 years from now? If there is a United States a hundred years from now, what are the odds that you could do it? But we can surely have confidence in the his great historical accuracy of the Word of God. Point number five, the reason I believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God is because of fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. Now this alone is enough to prove that the Bible is the inspired divine Word of God to any reasonable-minded person. The Lord Jesus himself said in John 6, 45, it is written in the prophets. That means it was foretold by the prophets long before it come to pass. But before we look at how accurate prophecy is, let us look at something counterintuitive in regards to biblical prophecies first. I call it the law of compound probability. Each detail of a prophecy doubles the chance of the prediction coming to pass. For instance, a prophecy with one detail has one chance in two of fulfillment. It will either be fulfilled or not fulfilled. A prediction with two details has one chance in four in coming to pass. This shows how impossible it would be for many of the lengthy prophecies of Scripture to be fulfilled apart from divine power. And the probability gets higher and higher. Example again, 10 details in a prophecy means it has 10 chances in 1024 of fulfillment. 
But now let's look at how accurate prophecy is. Let's look at Daniel's 70 weeks are better known as the number of years. In the first year of his reign, that's King Darius. I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 verse 2. Now this 70 years is the first captivity and Daniel was already living in the midst of this. Having established these facts, let us proceed to Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 through 27. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince, that's Christ, shall be seven weeks or forty-nine years, and threescore and two weeks or that is four hundred and thirty-four years. The street shall be built again and the walls even in a troublous time. That's a total of now sixty-nine weeks that Daniel is looking at here. For from the order to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple was 49 years, Daniel said. And the finishing of the building of the temple to the first coming of Christ, that's what everybody's celebrating this time of year with the babe in the manger was the first coming of Christ incarnate in flesh was 434 years. And after three score and two weeks, that's 62 two weeks, <clears throat> shall Messiah be cut off. That's the crucifixion. Daniel saw the crucifixion. But it said, but not for himself. Why Christ did not die for himself. He died for the sins of the people. And the people of the prince, Daniel goes on to say, who is that prince, but Roman, the Roman general Titus in AD 70 AD that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Those wars that Daniel's seeing here, that's the Jewish Maccabean War, according to the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. And he, Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That word he there, I inserted the word Antichrist in because that's who it's talking about. And he, that's the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate. Just after the church is gone, and that I believe will not be much longer, there is one more week or seven years of Daniel's 70 weeks. And that will be the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, which will make 490 years of fulfilled prophecy. <clears throat> so we can see here in the above verses that Daniel predicts the exact, rebuild, the exact time of the rebuilding of the Jerusalem and the temple. He predicts the exact year of the birth of the Messiah. He predicts the crucifixion, the second destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and all of these predictions came, came to pass because we have them in fulfilled prophecy. And for good measure, good measure, Daniel told of the Antichrist coming to power in that last week, which is just ahead of us. We are now at the soon start of the last seven Years are the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks are in completion of 490 years. 
And from the 483 years when Christ was crucified until that last week of Daniel, there's approximately 2,000 years or the church age of which we are now in but quickly closing, also called the times of the Gentiles. Second, Jeremiah prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem again. He rehearsed to the people what was prophesied before him by Micah the prophet. Here is what Jeremiah said about Micah. Jeremiah 26 and 18, Micah the Moorishite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house after the high places of a forest. This Jeremiah was looking at was the second destruction of Jerusalem and the temple to come, which would take place in 70 AD. The prophecy was Micah's, and Jeremiah is only foretelling what Micah had said and what it would be. And the people reacted with hostility toward Jeremiah, like if a prophet came today and said this about America, that it would be plowed like a yoke of oxen would plow a field level or make level like it did when the Twin Towers in New York City fell. He would be persecuted to death if he come and made these statements today. And then was filled after Micah's death what he had prophesied in Micah 3 and 12. Therefore shall Zion for your sake, that means because of your faults, because of your sins, because of your idolatry, God said because of you Israel, that Zion would be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountains of the house as high places of the forest. And this was done by Titus in 70 A.D., and Israel went into captivity and was scattered among all the nations of the world until around 1948. And since then, the church and the world have been living on borrowed time, waiting on God the Father to act. For Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, It is not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. What we're doing right now is we are simply waiting on God. Third, Daniel's vision of Christ compared to Daniel's vi John's vision. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 4, here is more, more uh, prophecy given to us. And in the 4 and 20th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittikah, this is Daniel. Now then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Yopaz. His body also was like the burl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And then we see the fulfillment of that in John's vision of Christ uh, from Daniel's vision. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, it says, I, Daniel, was in the Isle of Patmos. Now he was surrounded by water. Keep that in mind. And in Revelation 1, 13 and 14, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clove the garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like in the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. Here we can see the exact same person in the two visions. Both Daniel and John are beside a body of water. Both fell at his 
feet like dead men. Both saw a man clothed in a garment. Both saw him with a golden girdle. In both visions, his eyes are like fire and his feet's like brass and his voice is loud like the sound of many waters and like a voice of a multitude. And these men both live 500 years apart. Fourth, the prophet Micah predicted the smiting of Christ on the cheek. Micah 5 and 1, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. It was fulfilled in Matthew 27 and 30, and they spat upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Micah also predicted the birthplace of Christ 700 years before. Micah 5 and 2 says, But thou Bethlehem Euphratite, Though thou be littlest among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. And this same scripture he also prophesied that Christ was to come out of the tribe of Judah. In the 5th century B.C., Zechariah the prophet predicted the 30 pieces of silver and the potter's field. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was praised out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Even going so far as to tell us where this dastardly deed was done by Judas. Matthew 27, 5 says, And he cast down the silver in the temple and went out and hanged himself. It was done in the temple. The prophets would have told the Pharisees that they were making a mistake, but human nature will not listen to the voice of reason. Zechariah again prophesied about the coming of Christ and his work on the cross. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. For, I be, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. That's, that is Christ. And in the King James Bible, all the letters of the word branch are capitalized. Why? Because in the Hebrew, Zechariah made it a proper name for Christ and not just a title or a word or for a description. He literally named him the branch. And he, said, and he goes on to say there in verse 9, And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That was the work of the cross that was done in one day by the branch. Number 6, David predicted the cross. The amazing thing about it was he did it 400 years before the means of crucifixion had been invented. Psalms twenty-two sixteen says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. I tell you, there has never been a book like the Bible and never will be. It is impossible to write the Bible. It is impossible to write a book like the Bible. Number six, why I believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God is because the Bible is indestructible. The word of God is perpetual. The word of God is immortal and the word of God is indestructible. You cannot destroy the word of God. Yet men from every age have tried to rid the world of the Bible. They tried to burn it and tried to ban it, even under the penalty of death to get rid of it. But God's words cannot be destroyed. Everything else will be, but not the word of God. 
every effort that the agents of Satan made to destroy the Bible, to wipe it out of the memories of the people, to get rid of it forever, has always failed. The more man tries, the more it continues to be made available. When that did not work, they tried through those who were supposed to be its defenders and its friends to try and explain it away. But they could not explain it away no more than the backslidden prophet Balaam when bribed by the Moabite king Balak could curse the people of God without God allowing it, Numbers 23 and 24. Since the 18th centuries, those, Satan, those agents of Satan masquerading as theologians have tried to discredit the Bible by attacking it from within, and their chief argument was to try and disprove its validity. Satan, after hundreds and hundreds of years of failure, went back to his old original trick to get mankind to question the word of God. And as he said back in Genesis chapter 3, And hath God said, This is the first recorded question in the Bible. And the English question mark does resemble the serpent a little bit. He knew that the greatest way to get rid of the Bible was not to get rid of it at all, but to turn the hearts of the people away from the validity of the Bible itself. That way the people themselves would reject its claims as inerrant and inspired, and it to them would become no more than any other book. And that has by and large work. Look at how many today question the Bible. But that will also fail in the end as all attempts of the devil against the word of God will fail. We still have the Bible. There are still those like me that believe and preach that it is the divinely inspired inerrant word of God. And I believe that God has given us a complete Bible. But man keeps trying to come up with a better one. I expect it has more to do with money than anything else. For you see, there's a lot of money to be made in printing Bibles and coming up with new ones. But look at what great damage has been done to mankind. Not to the Bible, but to mankind. Matthew 24, 44 says, And whosoever shall fall on this stone, that is Christ, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. All the souls that have been lost, all that have been discouraged and delusioned, many in and out of the church, by this work of attacking the validity of the Bible, having been ground to powder in many over the centuries. As time will not allow much here in such a short space, but I want to give you one illustration before I close today of the indestructibility or indestructibleness of the Word of God, the Bible. The late French philosopher and atheist, François Marioi, better known by his nom de plume, or nom de plume, or pseudonym Voltaire, was one of the greatest enemies of the Bible outside of Satan himself. He proclaimed about 100 years after my death, there won't be a Bible left on the earth. 50 years after his death, his house in Geneva, Switzerland, was bought by the Geneva Bible Society. They moved in the printing presses and went to work until his house was full of Bibles. That, according to the Reverend W. Osworth in 1836, who saw it himself, and also it's confirmed by a lengthy in a lengthy article by crossexamine.org. Now, this is the man that said, 100 years after my death, there won't be a Bible left on the earth. 
Now, 200 years after his death, Great Britain bought the first copy of the Geneva Bible from Russia for $510,000. And the first printing of Voltaire's book sold on the streets of Paris for 11 cents. Not only is the Bible the divinely inspired, inerrant word of God, it is the best book on earth. But it is also the most hated and opposed book on earth. It has been attacked both by political and religious rivals and establishments, yet it stands ever more victorious. Someone once said that books are like men, they're dying creatures. The greatest percentage of books stay in demand for not much more than 20 years. And by then most have passed out of existence, except for a few here and there collecting dust in the old bookstores or antique shops. A small percentage may last a hundred years, and a few may even last a thousand years, and only the rarest, rarest of the rare last, last longer than that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, the preach, it says the preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of the assembly, which are given for one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books there is no end. Solomon in Ecclesiastes opens in chapter 1, verse 2, with vanities of vanities, all is vanity. And he closes his book with chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. This is what his take on life in the natural was, all is vanity. Now be warned, my listener, you may read all the books in the world, but if you neglect the Bible, the book of books, all else is vanity. But over 2,500 years ago, God himself declared in simple and short form, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Isaiah 40 and 8. Our next text message, our next message will be part four of why I believe the Bible to be the divinely inspired word of God. Now, if you would like to receive a printed copy of this message or have any questions, contact us at rdwtruth at yahoo.com. Now, I'd like to ask you to please help me to continue the Spread the word about this program by sharing it with others. The old steel—they cheat and lie for wealth and want. It will buy, but don't they know on the judgment day? is good.
I'd rather be